Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So the, the South American expedition was born out of um, a group of us all just getting together and in a pub and getting drunk and thinking wildly and, you know, and, and suddenly coming up, let's go to South America. Let's go for nine months because we can't afford going backwards and forwards. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this episode with Brian Hall. Brian is a climber and mountaineer and a qualified mountain guide and author. He's been a key figure on the big mountain scene and has carried out expeditions to some of the bigger and bolder mountains of the world, including Mount Everest in winter, K2, Janu, Nupsi, Makalu, Baltoro Kangri, Shivling, the Ogatu, and peaks throughout the Andes. The list goes on and on. He's a mountaineer's mountaineer and has had a sensational career, often shying away from the fame and glory that often comes with climbing at that level. He's just released a book about the golden age of Himalayan mountaineering in the 70s and 80s, and we go into that in detail in this episode. Okay, over to Brian Hall. So, I think a, a logical, obvious place to start would be um, just to introduce yourself. Tell me who you are, what you do, and what your life involves. Okay. Uh, my name's Brian Hall, and uh, I'm a mountaineer, I guess. I've been a mountaineer all my life. Started climbing when I was uh, uh, 16 in the Lake District. Um, I then went to Leeds University, where um, I, I arrived really as quite a, oh, a Mr. Average uh, climber. Uh, and suddenly I was hanging on to the coattails of all these amazing climbers, uh, like John Cyrus and etc etc um and uh, suddenly i was climbing routes that were beyond my dreams then um i i left leeds and then went to bangor university to study ecology i studied geography at, uh, at leeds um and at, at bangor i i again i, I fell in with a, a group of mountaineers uh, and and just progressed from really rock climbing um in britain and snow and ice climbing in Scotland to the to the Alps and then to the greater ranges and certainly through my 20s uh, into my 30s I was just a really a, a mountaineer I did nothing else I, I I hadn't got a job I I had I had partners occasionally I had no car I had no phone uh, I was a dirtbag basically who just you know um, went around the world climbing and uh, and I, I was part of a group really that probably had its roots in many ways in Leeds but uh, a lot of the people who were at Leeds University had friends of friends and we all formed a very loose group uh, through 
this is the 1970s and the 1980s. Um, and then really, I guess um, there would be a, a, a time when I felt as though uh, I should finish mountaineering. And we're going to talk about that more later. But really in the mid-80s, uh, several things happened. Um, I, I, a lot of my friends had died and I became um, dissatisfied with going into the mountains uh, at a high level. Uh, but I still continued climbing and I qualified as a mountain guide and started guiding in the, the Alps. I, I moved to Chamonix and lived in Chamonix um, uh, for eight years, um, climbing constantly. But I got I guess, fed up with just taking people up the same old routes um, because I've been used to doing lots of different things, exciting things. And so there became an opportunity to work with um, the film industry, providing safety for film crews going into the mountains. And I just thought that was wonderful. It was great. Every job was different. It was really exciting. And also, to be honest, he was quite quite well paid um, compared to um, sort of the average day-to-day -day climbing Mont Blanc, for example. And and that really was um, my main thing that I did, really, through the late 90s, right the way through to, um, to COVID. And then at COVID, everything stopped, combination of Brexit, and I decided... Now that I'd just reached 70, it was time to hang up my boots and retire. So I'm officially retired now. And during that time, I did all, I did all sorts of diversions. Um, along with John Porter, a fellow mountaineer who I climbed with, we, we set up the Candle Mountain Film Festival in 1980. And we ran three of those in 80, 81 and 83. And then we decided that, God, this is too much hard work. We'll... Uh, we'll go back to climbing. So we went back to climbing. And in 1999, um, people were saying, well, where's Kendall gone? We really loved it. So we reinstated Kendall and we ran it every year until 2008 when we thought, oh, no, we've just had enough of this. And we turned it into a, a sick, a community-interested charity and gave it to a, a, a new team of people who some of them are still running it uh, but we still have strong ties with that. So I got very, very involved, not only in the in the safety issue of making films, but also in the um, the showing of the films, I guess. And 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 during that time, for example, the Kendall Mountain Film Festival became the second biggest film festival in Britain after London of any film festival, and we we got to have it audited to get grants, and we brought in one million pounds worth of. Uh, turnover into the Kendall late, Southern Lake District economy um, in, in, for every festival. And I think that really, you know, continues today. So I think it's quite a, a quite, I find it quite a nice legacy to sit back and, and think about that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I'll tell you this story in person one day, but I can personally thank the Kendall Mountain Festival for getting me into the industry. I sat in that audience and fell in love with Mountain Film in that theatre. So thanks. Um, but if you know, going back to the very, very early days of your climbing, you know, age sixteen, right back at the start, what was it that gripped you and that pulled you in and that got you so hooked? 
it's very difficult memory, you know, thinking back. And one of the reasons um, uh, I wrote, I've just finished writing this book called High Risk um, Climate to Extinction. And one of the reasons why I wanted to write that book was that I realized that my memory of a lot of things 40, 50 years ago was getting rather jumbled up and a bit vague. And I, I wanted to revisit that time. And, and 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 try and remember the whys and the ifs and who I did it with, um, and um, it was a fantastic, unbelievable experience writing the book, talking to people, ringing up people who I haven't met or arranging to meet in pubs people I hadn't met for for thirty and forty years, and it was so enlightening and so powerful to do that, and 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 one of the things was remembering really starting when I was uh, was 16. And I started with my mate, uh, Sam Cochran, um, who was born on the same day as me. Um, uh, we had similar tastes in music. Um, and and, and, and we, we, we both liked wandering around the hills uh, in our spare time as 15 and 16-year-olds. And then one of our school teachers, a Mr. Causey, Jeff Causey, said, well, why don't you come out? We're going to go out in winter. Um, and you'll just have to have a bit more, you know, tuition about what you're going to do in winter because we're going to go up this gully, which was called Hartafell Gully in Kentmere. Uh, so we had these crampons and ice axes and we had to put a rope on. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I, I did three winter climbs that winter. I climbed snow and ice before I went rock climbing. But then very naturally, um, we went with a group of Jeff's friends, who were a lot older, to Lamberry's Pass and did my first rock climbing, which was the Wrinkle um, on the Wasted, I think it is. And I just found it so, so powerful and the feeling. Um, you know, I, I was quite good at cricket and I was quite good at rugby, but the team games suddenly didn't give me that self-confidence uh, and elation that doing a climb did. And so... I became hooked and Sam and I climbed together and I'd always remember the first rock route that we did together, which was um, uh, Bofell Buttress, uh, just the head of the Langdale Valley. And it was a multi-pitch climb. And it, we felt totally out of the gets. You know, things just like reading a guidebook and trying to translate that onto a, a lump of rock. We, we, you know, when you had somebody there telling you what to do and pointing, it, it was so much easier, but just doing it by yourself. And I always remember that, that because you don't actually become a proper climber and a proper mountaineer until you do it yourself. It's all right being guided. Yes, it's a nice time. You have a good time in the mountain. But you have to want, you know, get away from everybody else with your mate, go out and do something with yourself with nobody there saying do this do that and we looked at the this 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 crag where the hell do we climb and then we read these words and it didn't seem go up a corner to a ledge where lots of corners and lots of ledges anyway we we got to the top and we were so made up it it, it, it was as though we'd played played in the you know the 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 FA cup final you know it was that that sort of elation and from then on we were just hooked. We 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 took a steam train. You know this this engine with with steam. It's that long ago, and the compartments were all, all 
you know, the, the carriages were all compartments, all the way up to Sky, and ha- and and Sky just felt like the biggest mountains in the world. And and yeah, we, we were frightened because we were there by ourselves. But in doing that, that was another step on the ladder to to becoming proficient and enlightened by the mountains. And not only that, by doing that, you go on a journey. And I think that mountaineering from right that that start is a journey. And you can only do that journey if you do it by yourself. The journey is you, you're packing your gear. You have to be reliant on that. You find out where to go. Um, you, you look at and study the route. And you're on the route yourself. And you have to make your own decisions about the weather forecast. And it's just the same whether you're doing Bofo Buttress, the Keok in, 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 in the sky, or whether you're climbing a major Himalayan peak. Unless you take that journey, and if you shortcut that journey, your, your experience is severely diminished. I'd say that sums it up pretty well. Better than most, actually. Um, it's hard to argue with that. And, well, you know, back then... Were you always, did you have your eyes fixed on the greater ranges and the bigger hills or did that come later? I didn't have my eyes fixed on, on the greater ranges for sure. I, 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 there, there was nothing, there was no way. I was I was a very much um, Mr. Average. I, you know, I was, I, I, I was frightened on V-diffs. You know, I, I actually climbed better on ice. And that probably continued all the way through my life. You know, I, 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 I could... I could do a grade three um, ice climb before I could do a VS, for example. And so I started from that sort of background. And, and, and I must say that my development as a climber was a series of steps. I was not never looking at a, at a, big, a, a big mountain and thinking, I will get there. And, and all the stories of what was happening, for example, uh, the story of 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 um, Bonington's South Face of Annapurna in 1970, I think it was, um, w- w- was was not was something I read and found interest in reading, but never ever thought that I'd go there or do that. Um, and yet, and yet, five or six year, years later, that had changed. But it changed because of a series of steps and because of a series of people who were influencing me, and I. I don't know many climbers or mountaineers who haven't progressed without the aid of mates or mentors, um, and that was, but that was very certainly my um, my my, um, my experience. So when I went to Leeds, my 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 best mate Sam, who we climbed together, we were born on the same day. We went to university to the, the same. We we ended up sharing a house together. We even ended up sharing girlfriends occasionally. So um, we, we were like twins. Um, but what a strange a strange thing happened was that um, we went down to Bosigren, Cornwall, and, and we had a car accident, and Sam was really badly injured. And Sam was like a really – we were identical in our wanting to adventure, and that completely changed his outlook. Um, so he never climbed again after that. And it, it was a, a looking back on it, it was a an example of post post traumatic stress. You know, although post traumatic stress wasn't defined until 1980 and was nearly always labelled for the military, now I believe post traumatic stress 
it actually happens to a lot of mountaineers and climbers and people in other ways of life. For example, in motor accidents, a third of people who have motor accidents suffer from post-traumatic stress. And so I was then, Sam not disappeared from my life, but wasn't my partner. So I, I joined the Leeds University Mountaineering Club and it was such a vibrant club. People, you know, the people, the people who perhaps listeners will remember on the names of, for example, I, I climbed an awful lot with John Syrett. <clears throat> I climbed an awful lot with John Stainforth, Bernard Newman, uh, Roger Baxter-Jones. A lot of people, a lot of these people were, you know, far better than me. And it was only by them tying onto the end of their ropes and then pushing me that I progressed within a year from struggling on VSs to doing, you know, extremes then. They weren't E1s or E2s or E3s. But, and, and then suddenly, are you going to go to the Alps? My God, you know. And I'd never dreamed of ever being going to the Alps. And we went to the Alps and off we go. Yeah, and before we get into all of that, I'm fascinated by the journey and, and what happened to all of you. But, you know, you've said it was kind of the mid-70s to the 80s where you were coming in. What was the legacy that you'd been left by the generation before? What was the state of mountaineering when you were getting into it? Okay, well, um, I think that um, it was a ma in a massive state of flux, I believe, on on all counts. And so what we went into both in rock climbing, in ice climbing and mountaineering, all of them were dramatically changing in the beginning of the 70s. Um, if we just take the simple one of rock climbing, um, I think that um, the, uh, rock climbing had probably stagnated a little bit after the Browns, Willans type of era. And there was still a, quite a, um, a movement to, to still pull on aid or rest you still done a climb if you'd rested on a on it. You know, it's it was that sort of ethos. And also, but but what helped was um, that that time there was a big increase in the in the way that climbs could be protected. I started with hand machine nuts on a sling, and by the time I was at university, three or four years later, there were actually Moax. There was wire wire nuts. There was aluminium carabiners. Uh, there was harnesses. When I started climbing in 19, um, seven, 1966, I was on a hemp, hemp waistline um, with slings and a, and a hawser laid rope. By the time I was at university, there was um, a, a lot different protection. There was nuts. In that, only in five years. But also the ethics. We, we had, John Syrett, for example, had the ethic that if he had to rest on a route, if he had to inspect a route, um, or if he had to use aids on the route, he hadn't done it. And that was new in that period. And, and John was one of the leading people, not only in his ability, um, but in his, his idea that he would, that that was what was going to happen in, in you know, in, in, in rock climbing. And, and, and by the time I was in like 1972, 73, Really, you know, the, the the maximum that people climbed in in the present day uh, was really E36A. That was the hardest 
that was the hardest routes, really, which seems pitiful to think now um, that the best climbers of the day, and, and certainly I wasn't climbing at that level. I was probably climbing at, you know, getting up what would be regarded as E1s, um, you know, today, perhaps a few E2s. So there was a big change. By the way, there was no CAMs by then. No CAMs. CAMs came at the end of the, the decade. Um, so so gritstone climbing was a lot hard, and we were doing a lot of gritstone climbing because obviously we were at Leeds and limestone. But the limestone, a lot of it was protected by pegs then. Um, in, in winter climbing, it was right at the time when, um, when I first started ice climbing um, or snow climbing or whatever, I had a wooden ice axe and I had crampons with no front points. There was no ice, there was no ice screws. Um, within five or six years, um, two things happened. Um, well, one thing happened, the development of gear, but it happened in two ways. Um, Johnny Cunningham passed the idea of, cur of curved, curving the, the pick um, of, a, uh, of an ice axe. So it hooked better on ice when you banged it in. And over in, and, and Chouinard looked at this and developed commercially the idea of curved picks. At the same time, he also put on front points, which had been experimented by, by people earlier by people like in Austria, like Welsenbach. Um, so it wasn't all just, you know, like Schoenardi said, he is the father of all this. He commercialized it, but Welsenbach perhaps with his front points and Johnny Cunningham with the curves had the ideas before. And at the same time, over on this side, of the, of the Atlantic in Scotland, Hamish McInnes developed his prototype pterodactyl. Rather than a curve, it was a sharp thing. Now, that, that really revolutionised, and within five years, people were, people were starting to repeat routes that had never been repeated. You know, the, the classic, just rewind here. So, um, Marshall and Smith were unbelievably good climbers. Scottish climbing do many, many of the, the hardest Scottish routes of the day. They break through into the grade five level at that time, but they were using straight ice axes. They were cutting steps. And so nobody else was had the ability to do that. And it was only a few years later where people started doing the second ascents and third ascents and then progressing to grade five. And I was involved in that in a strange sort of, well, I was involved in it because I was with the people who were doing it. Uh, we'll talk about that. Remind me to, we'll talk about that in a minute. But, but that what was also happening in the Scottish winter ice climbing. Sorry, it wasn't just in Scotland. It was happening in the Alps as well. You know, it was happening in Alaska and Colorado. We're not just talking about, you know, jingoistically like, hey, it's just Britain. And then in... Mountaineering terms, mountaineering terms, 1975 was the watershed year, which we were coming up to. You know, I, I just said that I, I, I read about 1970 and uh, Annapurna. Nearly all Himalayan mountaineering, Alaskan mountaineering, South American mountaineering, Patagonia, was heavyweight fixed rope expeditions, using porters, uh, high altitude using oxygen. Um, taking many days importantly they nearly always were for one from one nation 
there were there were English British expeditions, there were American expeditions, they weren't mixed expeditions like it is now. And and that and by that by the early 70s, most of the major 8,000 meter peaks, all the 8,000 meter peaks have been climbed, and quite a number of the significant peaks in the 7,000 meters have been climbed, again in South America and North America. And the last real hurrah of it uh, was in 75 when Chris Bonington um, took a large heavyweight expedition to climb the southwest face of, of Everest. And that was really, certainly in Britain, the last big Himalayan expedition. And it was the end of an age. And my group of friends um, could see this and were building up to that to move on to the next level, which was to move from the heavyweight expeditions to using the same same system that we'd been using for four or five years in the Alps to go and use that same system in the Himalayas. In other words, what was christened Alpine style. So Alpine style meaning that you, you pack all your gear in your bag and there's two or four of you, if it's in the case of the Himalayas, and you start at the bottom, you go to the top and you come back down and you don't have any extra you know, you don't have people helping you. You don't have a, you know, you might have a couple of goes because the weather comes in, you come down and you go up again. And, and um, but essentially it is, it is a fast and light. People say light in terms of an overall expedition um, uh, the, the, because the actual rucksacks you carry are bloody heavy. As you know, it's, you cram them full of perhaps eight days food and fuel to do it. And it's just massively. But the other important thing is, it was doable because if you, I would have had to wait all my life to be invited on a uh, one of these elite expeditions. Whereas suddenly, if there was just two or four of you could go, you could buy a ticket, pack your gear in a few bags, and off you go to India or on Nepal. So suddenly, it became accessible. It became accessible also because the jumbo jet had been invented. And airfares prices went down. Laker had started doing cheap fares. There was all sorts of things that went into it. But that mid-70s was the crucial time when we moved from heavyweight to, um, uh, to, to alpine style in, in the Himalayas. We'll come on, we'll develop that in a, you know, later on. Because also we thought it was safer to do that. Big mistake. But we thought it, we thought that. So Things were, times were a changing, as Dylan said at the time. <laughs> hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. <laughs> and so, you know, obviously, as you say, it was a watershed moment. It was pivotal. Everything was changing. As Mr. Average, as you put it, how were you getting involved in those dreams, you know, heading out east or to Alaska or wherever? Well, by 
total coincidence, really. I, I, I do believe in chance and sliding doors in this world um, that, you know, just, you know, you're wandering along and then something happens and it takes you in a wildly different direction than you ever anticipated or ever thought you could go. So I, when I went to university, I ended up um, sharing a room uh, uh, with a Liverpoolian guy called Nick Parry. And he was a climber as well. And his climbing mate, because he lived two doors down or three doors on the same street as him, was a guy called Alan Rouse. Now, Nick, my roommate, sort of became more interested in girls than climbing. And um, so Al went to Cambridge University. He was really incredibly clever. And it was pretty boring, the social life down there. So he used to hitch up uh, and uh, to Leeds. And he was us on our floor and I would go climbing with him. Now he was way, way better than me. You know, he'd been trained, he'd been training since he was a lot younger on the break. You know, he'd been up and down every every day, honing his, his finger strength. And he was so, so good. And yet, you know, I, he was totally happy to, you know, drink and get pissed and and love life uh, in Leeds. And then we used to go out climbing uh, together. And in particular, there was there became a bond between him and John Syrett, uh, because John Syrett was the best climber at Leeds at the time, and there was a sort of a rivalry, uh, and particularly that would be you know shown on Joker's Wall at Bremen, where they tried and tried and tried to, to climb it, and eventually Syrett climbed it, and Al didn't manage to climb it, um, but also at that time. As I say, things were changing. The story of, of John Syrett, John Syrett never climbed until he went to Leeds University. Um, he was walking, he'd gone to a yoga lesson, which was very, very, very weird at that time, going to a yoga lesson. I mean, you know, what? it's very, very strange. Anyway, we'll leave that one. Um, so he was walking along, and in this corridor, there was all these holes, this, this wall with all these funny holes sticking out of it. And he wondered, what the hell is this? Anyway, a couple of days later, he walks past it. There's a guy called Don Robinson, and he was in the corridor by the wall. And John looked up at him and says, do you want to go? And John was a bit puzzled. I don't go, what? It's a climbing wall. All right, have a go. So he had a go, and he was hooked, and he was on it every day. So John Syrup, from not being a climber, went on a climbing wall. This was the first climbing wall in the world. Not only was it the first climbing wall in the world, but John Syrett was the test pilot for this. He was the first person to go from being a non-climber to being an expert climber. And when he went out, he was suddenly climbing far better than the rest of us. And that is what the way now that large percentage of climbers, rock climbers, start climbing. But that, in 1969, was the birth of what we now have as an Olympic sport. And and so Al Rouse was in line on my floor, what we're going to do today. John Syrett, John Stern for the come and knock on the door and off we'd go. Meanwhile, by other coincidence and sliding doors or whatever, Al's roommate in at Cambridge was a guy called Mick Geddes. Mick Geddes um, was a, a Scot and we'll talk a little bit about Mick now. Mick um, probably was at that time or would become the best ice climber in the world or certainly in Britain. 
by the time he got to university, by the age of 17, he was the youngest person to have done all the Munros, did most of them by himself. Not only had he done all the Munros, he'd done all the tops by then, which I still think might be a record, although all the research I can't find. So he was quite a wily guy. He was a very quiet guy. When he had a few drinks, he suddenly went went a bit off on one. But, you know, it was a very... So Mick started coming up. And at Leeds, we started to get... We had this minivan in 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 the winter. And we would we would leave for Scotland with it full um, on Thursday. Al and Mick used to arrive on Wednesday night hitching up from Cambridge. We'd all jump into the intervan, go up to Scotland, climb... Drive back, arrive back at Leeds on 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 um, on Monday. Uh, Al, Al and Mick would then hitch back to um, uh, Cambridge, get there on Tuesday, and then repeat the process next week. So I started climbing there with Mick Geddes. Now Mick Geddes, people might argue with this, but he really was the main driving force of developing. Um, curved and front point traction PLA uh, in French uh, ice climbing. You know, for example, him and Al on one of our trips up there did the second ascent of Orion Face, the second ascent of number one, number one, minus one gully. They, they, uh, Mick was the first person to climb a grade six, I think, um, in Scotland. He single-handedly, McInnes, yet. Yeah, and Chouinard developed the tools. Mick was one of the main people who then used them to their absolute maximum. So I had these two characters, well, three characters, more than that. Um, certainly Al and Mick became my mates. They weren't older, they were the same age, but they were so much more talented than me, And I, but some of it rubbed off. And and so I I was suddenly there with them, and of course when we became dissatisfied and wanted to um, go away to the Alps, then that's what we did. So uh, my progression uh, was I, I would not have progressed without those people. To, to to you know to be to put it short really, and 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 not only that everybody else was feeding off themselves. So so people like Roger Baxter Jones. Uh, who, who I was climbing with um, quite a bit, John Stainforth, um, and then John Whittle um, in, in Wales. So we, we formed this group at that time, or just before that time, um, Lito Tejera Flores had written this amazing article uh, for the Sierra Club, which every climber should read called Games Climbers Play. And what he, had, he defined, it was a set of, of games that climbers play. And you can start, you can really play anyone, but play any one of those games. But generally, people start at the bottom and work their way up and stop at a certain point. And this is crucial from a number of point of view, number, a number of reasons. Really, the first one being that it teaches you how to climb. And secondly, it teaches you about risk. So you start with bouldering. Then you go on to single-pitch rock climb, multi-pitch rock climb, uh, snow and ice climbing, alpine. Um, and then into the Himalayas. And he divided Himalayas into that right at the last minute from Himalayan heavyweight to super alpinism. Okay. So super alpinism really was alpine style. And it's obvious that not very many people get killed bouldering 
but quite a few people get killed in the Alps because there's crevasses, there's bad weather. And so as you go up that those games, um, uh, more things can go wrong. Um, and the objective dangers of the mountains increase. And it might be that some people just go to bouldering and, and climbing on Stanage, uh, and that's it where it is, and they're very happy to do that. Absolutely great. You know, no problem. It, you know, and, but his article, you know, was was very definitive and helpful to to sort of put, place people where they were, but we wanted to go up all the way up the ladder. You know, we'd suddenly gone to the Alps. The next thing that is not really mentioned is the Alps in winter, and we realised that um, we actually liked alpine climbing, but in the con the continent, the French and the Germans were starting to make a big deal that climbing in the Alps in winter was hardcore was where the actual cutting edge of mountaineering was. At that time, before global warming, warming, it was bloody cold. There was a lot of bad weather. It's a lot easier now. Not only that, the other factor is, in this period, we had no weather forecasts. Yeah, the weather forecast you got to go and climb was the one that was printed in the, in the newspaper that, that, you know, that on that day, which was just a guess anyway. Um, and so, you know, we started... Um, we went out to the Alps in winter in 1974, I think the first time, where Al Rouse and, and Rab Carrington, Rab, Rab was part of the team by then. So Al and Rab climbed together uh, and, and me and John Whittle climbed together, then me and John um, and Mick Geddes and then Roger Baxter-Jones. And, and so we formed this core of, of people who were, were climbing in the, in, in the Alps in, in the Alps in winter. And, and there were other groups as well. I'm talking about my, my smallish group. But for example, at that time, um, um, uh, Dick Renshaw and, and, and Joe Tasker were having similar thoughts and were in their own group. And, you know, we were really pissed off when they, we suddenly found they'd gone over to the Eiger and made the first, British, first winter British ascent of the Eiger. But they were on the exactly the same trajectory as us, but in a slightly different bubble socially in the UK. But we're all doing it. And likewise, those groups of Germans, like groups of Americans, doing the same thing. Um, so the, the Alps in winter was a huge stepping stone, not only for fitness and knowledge-wise, but mentally. It really was the mental thing. You, 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 had to, you had to learn how to suffer. And at that time, we viewed the climbing that we were doing totally reliant, as much as on getting fit, but for us to become adapted to the mountains, adapted to the dangers. And so, we were sort of thinking along the lines of, in a very crude Darwinian way, the survival of the fittest. Um, and, and I think that, that also, I mean, it, it, is a, it had been a very natural, um, not natural, I suppose a, a, in Victorian times, after we let, let, come from the romantics of Coleridge and Wordsworth and all those sort of people, we got into a group of people explorers in Victorian times who um, basically, I suppose, Nietzsche's quote, um, that, that which does not kill us makes us stronger, it was a sort of a, 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 an anthem of the day in Victorian times. And we were taking on that idea that by, by 
facing the danger, we would mentally become stronger. There's no way that you could just go from the couch to the north face of, um, of, of, of the Grand Jurassic in winter. Just mentally, physically, anyway, you had to go in a series of steps. You had to get used to it. So we were very much into the idea that our training was adaptation um, at that time. And by adapting to the Alps in winter, it allowed us to think about going on our first expedition, my first expedition, which was to South America. So the, the South American expedition was born out of um, a group of us all just getting together and in a pub and getting drunk and thinking wildly and you know and and suddenly coming up well, let's go to South America let's go for nine months because we can't afford going backwards and forwards so we went to Patagonia we went to Pol- Bolivia we went to Peru um, I remember we had to save up some money I beca- I'd left university I'd sort of left up, left my girlfriend because she wanted to settle down and I didn't, and that was another issue really. There's a lot of a lot of things saying, "Hey, you must, you know, come, you know, conventions that you had to do certain things. You know, you get a job, you get a house, you get married, you have children, you get a dog. You know, all these sort of things, which are all holding you down to the ground and stopping you going on doing your things. So I, I split up with my girlfriend sadly and whatever anyway we we saved money i I became a supply teacher i was climbing with john whittle john whittle um uh was an artist he was a philosopher and he 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 decided he was going to make the money for the trip by setting up a punch and judy show on landidno beach it didn't work so we had to borrow the money and even when we borrowed the money, we only had uh, enough money to buy one-way tickets to South America. So off we went to South America, and there was the uh, there was Al, Al Rouse and Rab Carrington, John Whittle and myself, and the Burgess twins, Alan and Adrian Burgess, who were all part of our group. Um, and we climbed uh, in, in Patagonia. Um, well, we climbed all over the place for nine months, and and that was our first expedition. But that was, but we were purely, purely. You know, we we took with us, you know, a, a couple of nine nine mil ropes and a and a rack, and you know, a set of boots, and that was it. You know, everything we carried was in one rucksack, um, and that was our first expedition, and that was all alpine style. The number of routes we did on that that trip was was just amazing. I mean, it just like I can't believe that we actually did what we did. And when we came back from that, of course, our minds more than our bodies, our minds. Are totally into it, into this. So off we go to the Himalayas. But that, I mean, as a mate, I didn't know that. <clears throat> I didn't know you did nine months. Because that's, I mean, it's the modern, you know, the modern dirt bags or the modern travellers. But I think to do it back then, to just pack a bag with some climbing gear and think, well, we'll work this out later. You know, coming home's kind of future Brian's problem. Um, you, I mean, did you just climb for nine months? Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Yeah, we, well, well, obviously there was the travel in between the place, like uh, all sorts of things happened. It's 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 in the book, all right. You know, quite a lot of it. All all this is in the book. Um, but for example, John and I were climbing Stanart. That was our objective, which hadn't been climbed. And eventually, we got to within uh, three meters of the summit of it, and then we're blown off the summit. Uh, so we couldn't actually claim it. So uh, I got back down, and and Bridwell had, had 
come to base camp and uh, he was looking for his gear, which he'd hidden somewhere in a pit um, in a, in one of his episodes of not being quite in the real world <laughs> as he was a lot of the time. But I got to know him quite well. And John Whittle found out that um, uh, that uh, a, a letter arrived because communications was non-existent. When we went to, to Ch- Cherry area, uh, there was no village there. El Charlton did not exist. There was a dirt road and one little building for uh, uh, the um, the park ranger. And so we went up into the woods and we got letters sent in by the Estancia driver going in there. And they, we, we had a, a camp in the woods. Um, and anyway, finally, you know, like one of our we got letters every month or something like some, something like that. And on one of the letters, it, it told us that two of our good friends in uh, uh, in Bangor had been killed during a winter ascent of uh, of the of the Matterhorn, and they were really good friends of John's, John Whittle's, and, and also um, that uh, Dougal Haston had been killed and avalanched. And John also had been a very good friend of Dougal Haston because he got to know him in the Alps in winter and both of them because of John's philosophical background Mick uh, Haston was very interested in philosophy and they spend a lot of time talking about philosophy and this destroyed John he said I'm leaving so he just packed up his bags and left so I was left by myself because you know there was three three pairs and so I I ended up going off with um, a guy called Mike Weiss and we went up, uh, we got a boat uh, from Punta Arenas to Puerto Montt, and then we climbed a volcano called Acerno, then Aconcagua, and then we met the others at, um, uh, in, in Buenos Aires. And then we went, caught the train up to La Paz, and we climbed in the Cordillera Real, and I did a new route with Bridwell. Uh, it's quite funny because it was the first time Bridwell had put on crampons. <laughs> and the top bit, I said, let's go and solo this. He said, yeah, 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 man, let's do all it. Yeah, it's great. And off he went. And he was good. He was quite a natural climber going up. But when he came to come down, because he hadn't climbed on crampons before, he, was, he, couldn't, couldn't, he couldn't descend. It was horrendous. Uh, and we had no, we'd left the rope behind. <laughs> uh, anyway, we did this new route. We got back down again. Then I went up to... Um, Peru and we did a, uh, some big routes in the Cordillera Blanca. Uh, Al and Rab were um, uh, were in the Y Wash and they did them their amazing three big climbs, uh, which are, you know most of them haven't been repeated on uh, on Rasa. So so we, we were doing a lot of climbs, um, and uh, I gave a lecture uh, two nights ago and Rab was at the lecture and he, he reminded me that we finished this by I borrowed money. We flew back to Zurich Airport, went straight to Chamonix, and uh, and and started climbing in Chamonix the next day. <laughs> Me and Rab, uh, so <laughs> climbing was running in running in our blood, should we say? <laughs> but it sounds like it has for your entire life. I mean, yeah, yeah, you know, and just sort of, you know, reading the notes before we started talking about all this. You know, you've talked about the new book and you know, you've called it high risk, climbing to extinction. And obviously you've just mentioned that, you know, a couple of people have been killed and, you know, don't. it's always awful bringing the tone down like this, but I'm curious as to specifically why you chose that title and what was it that made you think like that, I guess? Right, well, okay. So we, we all went to the, the whole group in different ways, started 
going to the Himalayas. So I went to Janu uh, with Rabanal and Roger Baxter-Jones, then uh, Nupsey, New Route on Nupsey with Doug Scott, George Bettenberg, uh, um, Al Rouse and myself. I'm the only survivor of that. You know, this is where you start getting the idea of uh, the four people, four of us on Janu, there's only me and Rab left. Um, I, I went to Baltoric Hangri and that was a ski trip, skied down from the summit to that. And then the Ogre to uh, Makalu, um, et cetera, et cetera. And finally on K2. Now, um, when I say finally, because to me that's, that's where a full stop happens for my for my Himalayan climbing in 1986. So really, this book is about from 1970 to 1986. Okay, so up until 19, 1980, hey, this Alpine style stuff is great. It's brilliant. You know, it's safer. We go in when we want. It's cheaper. It's absolutely great. You know, successful. Nobody's dying. It's and and that was the same for, you know. Mesner and Michael Kennedy in the States and all and Jeff Lowe and and all the all the French guys who were so brilliant as well. And and of course the Poles, Wojtek Kurtika in particular, who had by chance joined up with uh, Alex McIntyre to start climbing. Alex was Alex was one of the guys at Leeds as well. Um, you know, Alex possibly uh, more than more than any uh, drove this um uh, uh, Alpine style forward, but round about 1980, a few people started to die, and that became more and more. And we started looking. You see, the one of the reasons why we thought Alpine style was uh, was 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 better um, was because you're in less danger. If you think about it, on an expedition, say, to um, Bonington's Lax expedition to the southwest face of Everest, there might have been 15 people on it. Um, and they were climbing for over a two-month period. So, well, say they all went on the hill for like 30 or 40 days. 15 times 30 is a lot of man days to be exposed to the mountains. Take our trip to Janu, there's four of us, and we're on the mountain on Janu for eight days. So a hell of a lot of less man days against the 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 actual um, objective dangers of the mountains. The mountains have no consciousness, you know, that they, they they every day that they're alive, they're avalanching and snow snow coming down and boulders coming in. It's us that goes there and has to. Mo the danger is only ours, not the mountains. And so we thought, well, this is the obvious why. Why? But then these accidents happened, and we started questioning, you know, why this is. And it was only really when I, I wrote the boat the book that I came to analyze the a lot of things. Um, and it was a really deep, um, it took three years of thinking. Uh, and so one of the first things I did, I, I sort of looked at the people who died and the number of expeditions I went on and the number of people I went on and did the statistics. And I found out that in that period of time, I had a one in six chance of dying, okay, um, which is um, 
the same as um, as Russian roulette. Um, to give you a bit of context, uh, in the Battle of Somme in the First World War, the uh, risk of dying is one in ten. Okay. Uh, the worst, really, was the Second World War British Bomber Command, where it was one in two. But of course, in the Somme and the air crews, they had a choice. They had no choice. We had a choice. Whatever the, the chances are, uh, you know. And, and then there's a lot of other um, figures. You know, um, the, the most dangerous mountain in the world is, is Annapurna. So certainly at that time, for every three people who stand on the summit. Uh, one person dies. Um, Everest at that time was one to 10, although it's about one in a hundred now. So let's, all these figures are just you know, in here or out the other. But So it's dangerous, we have to say. So um, uh, what um, what could we do about it? And we well thought by going out more, as I said, we'd get this Darwinian adaption. But what we didn't realize is there's a feedback. It's a circular sort of thing. Because as we get better, our brains say, hey, we can do something harder, longer. Um, we can do something that's technically steeper. And by doing so, it became more dangerous. And so as we became more adapted, we did harder things, which cancelled out the adaption. And so this idea that we had um, um, was, you know, was not true, really. And, um, like, there's a big argument that happened a few years ago between Ed Vistas in the States, who wrote a book, saying that exactly that, that he was, he was safer than other people in the mountains because he was so good, he was so adapted. Dave Roberts, mountaineer, author, he's recently died, said no. It's pure chance. It's absolutely a lottery going into the mountains. You will die when, you know, just, just, just chance, the throw of the dice. And so going through my book and looking and analysing it, um, I, I changed my mind through what I thought. In my 20s, I didn't think I was going to die. It was going to happen to somebody else. But I changed my mind as I and when I, re I realized writing the book, as I got older and as you get older and all these anchors in the ground from your getting married and houses, you you, you become more aware of of your mortality. Um, that uh, it's pure luck whether you survive. And the more you go, the more likely you are you're going to die. And we were going on three and four expeditions a year then. Where the 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 old timers before in the sixties were only going on. It took two years to organise an ex bloody expedition, you know. So um, we were going more often and climbing harder routes. So we but we we were aware. I've got somewhere written down here. One of the the great quotes, uh, a very short one, uh, was by Al Rouse actually after he soloed the boulders in nineteen uh, nineteen seventy. He said, 15 minutes on the thin red line." is worth an awful lot of ordinary living. And, and that really shows the, um, you know, how Al Rouse viewed, um, viewed the whole thing, really. It's so interesting, though. Like, I'd love to get philosophical about it. We probably don't have time, but we could a little bit. I think, you know, 
that quote from Al is amazing, but he died in the mountains, didn't he? Al died in the mountains, yeah, for sure. And and it really was um, a case of, you know, an accident waiting to happen, really. I mean, um, he, most, the, nearly all the expeditions in the in, in that period, uh, people were dying. You know, Joe Tasker and Pete Boardman uh, died. Um, uh, Pete Exton died. Um, Paul, Mundo, Paul Nunn, one of my friends, died died later roger baxter jones um he was just guiding on the triolet in the in the argentia basin and a serac collapsed and, and wiped him out so there's so many people who were dying um just for you know why and i started then um becoming more philosophical before but thinking about my own mortality and um I went to, we, we organized a trip to K2, uh, which Al Rouse was the, the leader. And, and Al, by that time, was, was not the same Al that, that I, I knew uh, earlier on. He was, he was more competitive. He was more aware that he wanted to be the next Chris Bonington of British mountaineering. Um, and he, he felt as though he wanted to establish himself um, as the best mountaineer of the time, uh, whereas lots of other people, you know, were more just happy to do their own thing and, and climb. People like myself or Rab, but Al was m wanting to turn it more into a, a proper career, and he was in a f sort of a weird, a weird battle, I would say, with with Joe Tasker and Pete Boardman at that time. Um, who were also in that frame of mind. Of course, they died. Um, and in 86, really, Al was the, you know, in line to do that. He was doing a lot of good things. and But also he felt that if he made the first British ascent of K2, because it hadn't been climbed by, in Brit, by a Brit at that time, then uh, that would really cement his 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 reputation um uh because at that time people like doug scott and and chris boninson were 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 slowly you know getting a little bit older and not quite as as ambitious and um you know that was very very important and and we we'd been given permission to climb um the north west ridge which is two days walk away from base camp and that was far it was the wrong route to do out in in lightweight style and we got bogged down and we uh i i i had hurt my leg in a skiing accident and i had to go home early it turned out to snap my cruciate um and then um two or three of the other expedition left john porter left and then it was decided that we abandon the route and all go home but al said no i want to stay i want to have one last chance and try an alpine ascent of the abruzzi and he, he teamed up with a group of people going up there because uh, he wanted to climb he was obsessed the word is obsession he was obsessed by 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 the by mountaineering and he went up there and he was caught in a storm and he's still up there. Um, he made the first descent and he was also part, partly paranoid because uh, Julie Tullis uh, was also in that team of people and she would have not only been the first British person to climb K2, but the first British woman. And Al, Al 
um, really didn't want that to happen. He wanted he wanted to to be the first, and so there is competition in climbing for sure. People do do, do compete, um, and but tragically, well, in some senses, happily, both got to the summit, and tragically, both of them died. Uh, and of interest that uh, there was uh, Marufka was one of the other parties, and of interest to this debate that's going on at the moment about Hillary, um, the, the the American woman who's just died on on Manaslu skiing, and whether women should climb, you know, with with children. Both both Julie Tullis and Marufka had two children, and that was before Alison Hargreaves died on K2. Uh, with, with two children, so you know it's what it's um, it's just happening again. The big debate about about children and women, but it, you know it, it was it was happening in eighty six and whatever, you know. But also, you know, I mean, I think I was going to say this isn't the place. Maybe this is the perfect place to get these opinions out. If we're going to have that conversation, and I say this because I fundamentally believe it, we should have the conversation on whether or not it's okay to climb as a parent. You know, it, 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 it's just insane that people are talking about the difference between men and women and having kids and going mountaineering. It's madness. You know, that's I've got a friend who I shouldn't name and I'll let her her say it if she wants to on um, this sort of platform. She's a fairly well-known climber. And she says, the question isn't why aren't more women climbing hills? The question is why do men feel the need to, you know, the big hills? And that's mm. it's, it's a good question. But yeah. I, I, you know, and you, as you've alluded to, you know, you you chilled out your kind of greater ranges stuff, and that happens in the book, which you know will leave people to read that. But I, you know, to sort of start to wrap this up at at the start of this conversation, you mentioned post traumatic stress and PTSD. Do you think that's something that you suffer from or have suffered from as a result of your experiences in the mountains? Uh, yeah, yeah, I have, I have, um, I, I have suffered from them, but I mean, there's. Um, there's several forms of post-traumatic stress, and there's uh, there's post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a lot more serious. Uh, and that's when, rather than the standard post-traumatic stress, which is really a reaction, a natural reaction in your body, it, it, it's almost obvious that if you see somebody die. Then it's going to affect you, and it's a and the stress, post traumatic stress, is is actually the rebalancing in our brain and our body to to accept that, which might take a few days, a few months, or whatever. And I've had that experience both when I've had an accident or I've seen somebody die, but it hasn't affected me to such an extent that it's made me ill. It stopped me want to climb for a while and re recalibrate myself until I've got used to it but it hasn't made me ill so yes yeah, so, but I think that um what you say about uh the the female the parenting side of things is absolutely the question is um uh parenting not not whether you're a, a mother or, or a father and and I just view them as anchors and if you throw that anchor out um, and you're a parent, and that anchor doesn't stop you going, then fair enough, it's not, nothing wrong with it. But a lot of people in their 30s start to get responsibilities. And one of the key responsibilities is 
it is looking after children. And I remember, on, you know, John Porter, who I climbed with an awful lot, he was staying with me last night, and he, he, he had a really fantastic quote, uh, you know, an observation more than a quote. He says, well, you know, I realised my time really of climbing in the mountains, high mountains, was up when I started hearing my my two daughters' voices when I was on a bivouac shouting, Daddy, Daddy. Yeah, that'll do it. And as soon and soon as that happened, he knew that he couldn't go into the greater ranges. Now, if men, women, anybody goes into the mountains, and you know, if those things start to happen to you, they are messages that perhaps indicate that you know you should not perhaps not give up, but lower your horizons or do different things which you might think about uh, as uh, as being safer but i think that um one of the things that i found was um you know the fact when i've written this book that however expert you are or however a novice you are you have the same in many ways you have the same chance of of having an accident or death and that was particularly related to a lot of research that's been done in on avalanches onto heuristic risks so heuristics are you probably know what heuristics are, but some of the, the listeners might not do. But they they are they are the body short the mental shortcuts on daily decisions, and some of the most relevant ones that we do um, really define what we do in the mountains. And big research has been done in the in avalanche statistics, and basically they found out that the a person going into avalanche terrain or a skier first time a novice has as much chance of dying or being caught in the avalanche as an expert who's been doing it for so long and that is because experts mountaineers as well as avalanche fall into uh, uh heuristic traps and i'm going to read a few might be coming to the end of it, but just read a few of these heuristic traps. So the one of them is called familiarity. In other words, I've done it before. Okay. Consistency. I'll do it the same way as the last time. Acceptance. Fitting in with the social scene or norm. All my mates are doing it. Expert halo. I know the best. I'm a leader. Social, other people have done it, therefore so can I. Scarcity, we have good weather forecast, we must use it. Or it's our last day of the holiday, we must do it, okay? And then there's a several other things affect, it, affect our decision-making. One is optimistic bias. Is it, this is where you think another person's risk is greater than yours, which is quite a natural thing. And then false sense of control. The more you think you're in control, the less worried you are. And then the final one, which you will empathize with being a filmmaker, outside pressure, reward versus risk, sponsorship, filming, peer pressure, sponsors, demands. Now, all of those go into the mix, and it really just shows that you don't have to be an expert to die in the mountains. 
and you don't have to be a novice to die in the mountains. Uh, and there's a there's a, a another quote from a, a PGHM one of the heads of PGHM in Grenoble who says, "If anybody thinks that the, all the accidents that we p- pick up from the from the slopes of the the French mountains are novices and beginners, then they're severely wrong. Most of them are good climbers." So given all of that, you know, it's fascinating, the statistics and obviously um, the traps. Given all of that, would you encourage someone in their early 20s who loves rock climbing to start climbing in the bigger hills? Yes, absolutely. Because it's, it's well, certainly for me, um, it, it's given me a, life, a, a fantastic life that, that I would not really change. Well, you'd, I'd love that my mates were still here having pints who are dead. Uh, and I've been into situations where I felt I was going to die and I've had very hard times. But overall, my experiences in life have enriched my life massively. And I think that the further you go up the games climbers play, the more, the bigger the rewards as well as the bigger the risks. So it's just a mans- matter of of balancing reward and risk. And when you feel as though they're unbalanced, in other words, there's too much risk, then that's the time to get out. And I and I didn't realise that. In 1986, I walked away from K2 having a horrendous time. When I got back to Britain, I thought, God, I, I want to go climbing again. I want to go out to the Himalayas again. And I went out to the Himalayas again, and I couldn't climb. I hated it. And then I came back, and I, oh, I want to go out again. I did that three times. And it wasn't until... 2000 when i went out to k2 a final time that finally i had closure i was working on a film so i wasn't actually climbing but i hated it i hated it because of all the memories there and that was closure and i decided never to climb in the himalayas himalayas again in the big mountains um but but before that in in the period between 1986 and 2000 i was in limbo I, i i was in this mad madhouse in my head that I wanted to climb and when I tried it I was, I was rock climbing okay I was climbing in the Alps okay um as guide and whatever but r- proper big mountains um where you know you know that your life is on the line you have to have the right head to do it and you know the main thing it gives you is the journey and my final thing I'd say is that is absolutely key. And all this nonsense of people hiring guides and climbing Everest by a fixed rope from base camp to the summit with eight litres per hour of oxygen being pumped into them um, and all their bags carried, all their meals cooked, is not a journey. It's, 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 a, it's a person going on an ego trip to uh, totally goal-driven which is against everything that I would stand for in mountaineering and think it's crazy. But that's a complete different conversation. I was going to ask you, but you said it so succinctly and eloquently. I mean, it's clear where you stand. And, you know, it is a big debate. It's a question I've asked a lot of people and it's deeply personal, but it's quite obvious that, you know, I totally get why you feel the way you do. I, you yeah. know, I won't say which camp I sit in. I think it's probably, <laughs> probably obvious, <laughs> um, but yeah, amazing. I mean, we're slightly over time, so I'll just you know I I um, always end these 
uh, conversations by asking two questions, if you don't mind. Um, the first is, what scares you? Uh, claustrophobia. <laughs> In what context? Um, I don't like... Um, I like open air, and I don't like um, being oppressed by lots of people around me um, with no escape out. I, I've been caving. I can cave. You know, I've, you know, it's not that sort of claustrophobia. It's almost human claustrophobia um, that um, that scares me. That's interesting. I'm glad I dug. Um... What brings you hope? Oh, the new generation of people who are, who are, who are you know, I, I, a lot of this, a lot of my book and a lot of what we talked about is doom and gloom. But in actual fact, um, you know, the, although mountaineering um, now in many people's eyes is, is the 90% of people who are guided up Everest or Mont Blanc, there is another 10% of people who are young climbers developing as i did mostly but not often starting on a climbing wall wherever and they're probably similar in number but not in proportion who are doing the most amazing um new routes generally on the um 6000 and 7000 meter peaks in 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 the world um and, and totally under the radar and and what's great is most of them are accepting that it's totally under the radar you know, they 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 wanted to be under the radar because if they suddenly start shouting about it, they all they involve this other circus that's going on, um, in with 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 all these amazing trips. And one of my mo most beautiful times in the mountains in my life was that I cherish was when I climbed Nupsi. We went into the Western Coombe, and it was in the autumn, and there was nobody else there apart from Doug Scott, George Bettenberg, Al Rouse and myself. And we're walking down the, with all these amazing mountains with the only person, only people there. And I cherished that, that time. It was just a cathedral, a beautiful cathedral. And yet, uh, like three or four years later, I was asked if I would guide um, Everest. Um, and, uh, and it was for quite a lot of money. And I refused because it would have destroyed that moment. I couldn't have gone back there again because of that most amazing moment, which is etched in my memory. Fascinating and amazing. Um, we'll leave it there. Thanks very much. Okay then, Matt. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit theadventurepodcast.co.uk or follow along on Instagram at theadventurepodcast. The podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft, produced by Ola Omori, and if you want to get in touch, you can do so at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk.